Hello, everyone. Welcome back to our podcast. We're very glad that you've joined us joined us in our discussion. We're just kicking off a new quarter, at least the Seventh-day Adventist lesson quarterly is a new one, and it's on rest. And we think this is a great idea. It's also the case that we've spent a fair amount of airtime over the last few uh, seasons at various times discussing issues relating to rest and to the Sabbath. And uh, we thought that we perhaps deserved a rest from talking about rest. And so we're going to begin by by uh, coming at this from a, a little bit of an oblique angle. One of the reasons why rest is so important to us at this time is we live in a very frantic and, and hectic society. And uh, it's important to talk about rest just from... Uh, uh, it, it's a life hack is the modern term, I think you would say. Um and uh, we thought we might begin this quarter just by looking at, at the, the book of the Bible devoted to life hacks. And uh, so we're going to have a discussion on Proverbs and we'll see where this leads us. And we'll touch base with the lesson quarterly at various times over the next 13 weeks as interesting ideas present themselves and as we feel there's a need. So uh, please uh, enjoy our discussion. If you've got feedback and you'd like us to discuss any topic in particular, we're very open. You can email us. And our address is sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com. Uh, but for today, we're going to launch into the book of Proverbs. My name's Cameron, and I'm talking to you at the moment from Launceston in Tasmania. Yeah, g'day. I'm Ken. Same spot. Hmm. And I'm Luke. I'm self-isolating up in New South Wales. <laughs> and I'm Lachlan, also in New South Wales. Have any of you read any life hacks or, or or things identified with that term on the internet and ever wondered that it was that they were just a little bit trite. Yeah, definitely. No, Cameron, they seem to me to be the deepest of insightful wisdom. I'm looking at a set of parody ones on the um, XKCD comic strip, but uh, here's, here's one. Um, Hi, everyone, I'm back with more household tips. To conserve water, try turning off your shower before you leave home. Uh, sick of changing... <laughs> Sick of changing those smoke detector batteries? Eliminate any fires in your house and the batteries may last for months or years. Uh, tired of clogging toilets? Try leaving the lid on the upper chamber and use only the lower bowl. As, a, as opposed to the cistern. Um, fresh air doesn't have to be expensive. Many windows can be slid upwards to create a temporary hole without the usual cost and clean-up. <laughs> I have to admit, probably the only life hacks that I have ever actually seen have been parody ones. Yeah. It's not it's not a, f- a term that uh, excites my interest. Yeah. Making scrambled eggs? Put a pan underneath them. It's easier and it keeps your burners clean. <laughs> <laughs> so, so why this reference come to uh, life hacks? Well, I think that... Um... I think that the lesson, the concept of rest is, is a very utilitarian concept. God instructed it and there's, there's some sense of arbitrariness in, in selecting one day out of the seven in the Sabbath. But mostly a lot of the commandments about rest, I think, very much largely fall under the category of good sense. Relationships function best when time is allocated to them. And, and uh, I think it's... It's a commendable focus for the lesson. One book of the Bible that I've never seen, maybe it has happened and I've, I've missed it, but I, I don't remember a quarterly on the Proverbs. And I, I've not participated in many Bible studies where we people look at Proverbs. 
And everyone agrees that the Proverbs are very wise. They're very wise. The Bible's full of wisdom. But I've never heard of anyone refer to them in, in any utilitarian sense. As in, when someone is facing a dilemma, I haven't heard people say, but then I turned to Proverbs, and I was helped here, and I was helped there. And so uh, I think that they did serve that purpose, or were meant to. Uh, in an oral society, you tend to rely a lot more on Proverbs than you do on laws. At least laws, our laws are highly specific, and, and watertight, and, well, at least they're intended to be, and... Very wordy and particular, and can you appear to be smiling? Uh, um, uh, yeah, I, I'll c- come back to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that if you live in a culture where most people can't read and write, and uh, the vast, vast majority can't, and um, you look at an oral society, things tend to be passed down more in story form, narrative form, and proverb form. I think the book of Proverbs is the biblical book of life hacks, but is it still relevant? Is there anything in here that, that would help us today? I wonder whether you're being a bit too hard, Cam, on the book of Proverbs uh, and limiting it to life hacks. Um, I certainly think it's got much that's useful in much advice that's useful in uh, ways to live a good life. Um, but I, I, I go right back to the start and maybe uh, this something our listeners haven't always seen, but it says it is a book for attaining wisdom and discipline. Uh, They sound like good and uh, valuable things to have uh, for understanding words of insight. Um, uh, Perhaps, Cam, um, uh, we need to put more effort into understanding the words of insight. (laughs) Um, uh, Take take them seriously. Um, uh, For acquiring a disciplined and prudent life. That, that all seems a good thing to me. Um, doing what is right and just and fair. Um, th- th- this is good. Indeed, uh, giving the simple a uh, uh, prudence uh, and adding wisdom or adding learning to the wise. So they're, they're, they're all good things. That sounds like something that's worth exploring rather than just writing off as a life hack. Well, yes. Yes, you've caught me out, Ken. I was a little <laughs> facetious, but, but I think that we treat it as a it's seen as a sort of book of spiritual life hacks. I think Cam, that I, I can give an explanation for why we tend to perceive Proverbs this way, and it's because we do with Proverbs in particular, I think especially do with Proverbs. My single pet hate about the way that people read the Bible which is to take a single verse out of context. And Proverbs is very easy to take out of context because every sort of line in it is a self-contained, trite, if you will, when you take it by itself, sort of piece of wisdom. It's not a story. It's not, it's not a narrative. Um, so it's very easy to just pick a verse out of it and go, go to the ant thou sluggard, consider its ways and be wise, mm. which is perhaps one of the more well-known um, sayings in Proverbs. And I think, like I think for every single part of the Bible, it is better and the meaning is richer and clearer and deeper and, and more useful if you read it in its context. Mm. Hey, Luke, you've already opened uh, an interesting question there that tangentially connects to the Sabbath school. 
discussion because ants don't rest. It was unintentional, rest. I assure you. Ants don't <laughs> rest. They, they ants rest when they're dead. Um, so, so is it is it sluggardly to be even contemplating so, the he, idea of rest? Here's what I suggest we do at this point because this is going to come up in proverbs a lot. I did a little background on this. Um, there's a lot in Proverbs about don't be lazy, don't love sleep, don't be sluggardly. So how does that mesh with the ideas we're talking about of rest and rest in the Sabbath and all the rest of it? And I think context, and as Cam has already intimated, knowledge of the society and and the lifestyle of the people who were writing and talking and listening to this knowledge and wisdom in Proverbs will be very useful. But what I suggest specifically, Ken's already referred to Proverbs 1. There's a part in Proverbs 1 that I especially like, which is subtitled in the English Standard Version as the the call of wisdom. And it begins at verse 20 and it goes through to verse 33. And I reckon we should read 20 to 33. That's only 13 verses. Um, because 33 in particular is an excellent jumping off point for the rest of our discussion today. Wonderful. Let's that do it. Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1, verses 20 to 33. Wisdom calls aloud in the street. She raises her voice in the public squares. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. In the gateways of the city, she makes her speech. How long will you simple ones love your simple ways? How long will mockers delight in mockery and fools hate knowledge? If you had responded to my rebuke, I would have poured out my heart to you and made my thoughts known to you. But since you rejected me when I called, and no one gave heed when I stretched out my hand, since you ignored all my advice and would not accept my rebuke, I, in turn, will laugh at your disaster. I will mock when calamity overtakes you, when calamity overtakes you like a storm, when disaster sweeps over you like a whirlwind, when distress and trouble overwhelm you. Then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel, and despised all my reproof. Therefore they shall eat the fruit of their way, and have their fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and be at ease, without dread of disaster. Right, I can see what you were getting at there, Luke, a little bit. The the dwelling secure mm-hmm. and being at ease uh, are echoing the idea of rest in a sense, aren't they? There, there is a connection there with... So we're connecting the idea of wisdom, because Proverbs is all about wisdom, with rest. And the, the, the implication of this particular sort of passage is that rest is obtained not necessarily through idleness but through the application through through seeking for wisdom huh. right because because all all these 13 verses this is this is essentially about how people wisdom is available for anybody who goes looking for it and it wants to be found and understood and used and so many people just don't and therefore they suffer but if you seek it, you will find it. And if you find it, you will have, as it says, ease and repose. Mm. The other interesting aspect of that, I think, Luke, is that when you align yourself with the way the world really is, uh, with reality, um, you don't have to constantly fight against it. Um, so that if you, if you, if you have... Uh, an understanding of how things actually work, 
then you can use that understanding. Um, whereas if you if, if you don't understand, if you have a um, uh, a, a superstitious uh, approach to the way life works, uh, then you're never quite sure what you should be doing, um, and you've got to constantly be on edge. Um, uh, but if if you don't hate knowledge, which is one of the things that's referred to there, and it strikes me that a lot of the, a lot of our current worldview and a lot of our political debates uh, are not uh, designed to seek knowledge, but mm. are simply uh, designed to promote a particular position, whatever truth might be, whatever reality might be, um, however the world might really work. Um, uh, it's position-based uh, discussion and not based on a reality. And if you align yourself with the... Re if you know... To take a simple example. If you know how much petrol you've got in your car, you don't actually have to worry about whether you're going to make it to your destination. Um, uh, you can mm. enjoy the drive. Uh, but if you never know, because you're not look you're looking at the... You're looking at the speedo to determine how much fuel you've got, it's just never going to be relaxing. <laughs> Ken, I can, I can give you another example that you'll like. And um, this is really noticeable, although I am, I'm a very junior pilot and very inexperienced instructor. I am lucky enough to run an elective for some grade 9 and 10 students where we have some flight sims and we look, go through flight theory and we teach them how to fly. And when you put a beginner student on a circuit, they over-control the aeroplane by about 700%. Uh, when they're meant to be banking left, they bank too late. And then when they do start to bank, they bank twice the bank ankle they need and they bank too far and they have to come back. And when they're meant to turn final and line up with the runway, they overshoot it and they're too far on the right-hand side. So they bank to the left and then they're too far on the left-hand side and they're swerving all around the place and they're working really, really hard. And they're, when they're trimming it, they trim it too far nose forward and then too far nose back. And they're just, everything is over-controlled and very exhausting. And they find it very bewildering after they've tried it themselves. And I found I've stopped doing this because it doesn't really help them, they, they, which is a food for thought in its own way. But they find it very bewildering if I hop on and fly a circuit, maintaining a conversation with one hand on the yoke, um, explaining what I'm doing, because um, a really good pilot does almost nothing. Like... Mm. A good pilot is just knowing how to set the aeroplane up so that it does it itself. You don't manage the speed of the aircraft. You set the aircraft up so that when you take your hands off the controls, it flies at the speed you want. And uh, the acquisition of wisdom as a pilot really absolutely, without doubt, brings, brings rest. Mm. Uh, this, this directly follows on from that, Cam, is... Um... I don't know. I've watched a few a few videos, cockpit, you know, helmet cams of of really good glider pilots. I don't know if you've ever seen a really good glider pilot flying. Um, even compared to to you know pilots for for powered aircraft, um, they they would have what you'd call a light touch. It's generally two fingers on the control stick and just just nudging it a little bit this way or that way and feeling it and 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 being perfectly in in balance and not a not a a, a kilojoule of wasted energy <laughs> i love these aviation illusions but like you also had something you were going to add <laughs> it just look just in case there's anyone who listens to this podcast who doesn't have a pilot's license like me um <laughs> i 
look, I, I was really intrigued, um, Ken, by your your comment about this uh, verse twenty two. The the fools hate knowledge. Knowledge, of course, is not the same necessarily as wisdom, uh, but here in in Proverbs chapter one, they're being tied together in a sense. And you you referred to certain elements of our society that. You know, whether it's the way we discuss things on social media or our sort of political discourse or various different things do seem to at times be quite untethered from, from actual knowledge, actual real information. Um, one thing that I have done, uh, not so much recently, because it hasn't been quite such the, the hot social issue in Australia as it was a few years ago, but I, I did a number of times when discussing with people in a, in a very genuine and I hope sort of earnest and, and friendly and accommodating way, the issue of boat arrivals um, in Australia, you know, asylum seekers uh, claiming to be refugees arriving in Australia. And of course, one of the issues in Australia is people come and we are really a bit concerned as a society about the idea that there might be people who are not legitimate refugees, who are who are coming, trying to sneak their way into Australia just to sort of somehow better themselves at the expense of of others. Uh, let's say it like that. And so I I would ask the people that I was chatting with, I would say, well, you know, what's your guess? What percentage? Because, of course, when they arrive in Australia, they are asylum seekers. The Australian government then processes their as- asylum claim and and decides whether they're a legitimate refugee or not. So, you know, this, there's actual numbers on this. What does the Australian government decide? Um, uh, what percentage of irregular boat arrivals um, claiming asylum in Australia are declared by the Australian government to be legitimate refugees. And the reason I'm bringing that question up here is because I had that question and I was living in Canberra at the time, cycling across every uh, every now and again to watch Question Time at Parliament House and uh, was perhaps slightly more engaged with that element of our federal political system than I than I was before living in our nation's capital. And when I had the question, what percentage of asylum seekers arriving by boat on Australian shores are legitimate refugees, I decided I would find it out. So I literally wrote that question into Google. And the top search result came back. It's a document that's about 40 pages long. This is what it was at the time. It is a production of the Australian Parliament House Library. That is not affiliated with political parties. That is the, if you like, an independent information collecting body in the federal parliament. Turns out, depending on year and international political circumstance, it's somewhere between 97 and 99.5%. And the the reason I'm saying it is because, bizarrely, just as I had no idea of the answer to that question, no one that I have spoken to about it knew the answer. And we would guess. I don't remember what my initial guess was, but I've had people guess to me, oh, maybe 60% being a bit generous. You know, don't want to sound like like I'm too harsh on them, maybe a bit more than half. It's it's so much the vast majority that you that you sort of think, well, maybe if there was one or two percent leaking through, that's almost within the error margin that would be acceptable. Now, that's a political discussion that's probably out of scope for tonight. But the point I'm making is this idea of knowledge. And and I'm, I'm bringing it up because here these, these verses opened with wisdom cries aloud in the street. Um, in the markets, she raises her voice. And cries out. And I just think we live in a world where information is so accessible 
you know, I could find that in 13 seconds on my phone. Um, when have humans ever had this much access to actual knowledge, actual information? And yet we seem almost to be in an epoch where society is becoming less and less tethered to, to actual knowledge. And I wonder if there's not a connection there, Locke, that that it is the very abundance of it, the very low cost of access to it that drives apathy and, and also complacency and overconfidence. I think a lot of well, people confuse the fact that they can get a huge amount of information on their phone with they know a huge amount of stuff because they're not the same <laughs> right. thing. Even getting the information, where some students this last week were astonished when myself and another teacher suggested to them that they would um, do better without laptops at school. And they said, but how would we do research? We use laptops for research. And we say, no, you don't. Research doesn't mean assembling information from multiple sources. It means synthesizing and understand, understanding, processing the information from multiple sources. Mm. And you are not using your laptops for doing that. <laughs> yes. You, 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 you. I think I, I've seen this a huge amount recently because I've been working at a tertiary institution. I've been working at Avondale University College. And I've, I've seen a fair sampling of, to be fair, not the best students' work. There are a lot of excellent students there who do good work. And I, because of my role, generally don't bump into their, their produced works. But uh, for those who struggle, the fundamental problem, I suspect, is because they don't realize or they don't understand or they've never been taught that writing is a process of thinking. They think mm. writing is the process of, well, in a lot of cases, copying and pasting other stuff and then changing a few words. <laughs> right. <laughs> but but if it, the point is, if it's not going through your brain, you're not writing. If mm. your brain's not doing mm. anything, then you're not doing research. You're not doing study. You're not doing learning. Mm. Um, and a lot of people these days have no concept of that. Can, can I make some observations about that? And these are sort of... Uh, reflections on my own psychology of thinking um, uh, and I find uh, because I do a lot of uh, a lot of work with words and documents uh, and create them um, I have to not only um, give a decision I have to give reasons for that decision sometimes I do that on the spot and I do it orally um, other times I do it uh, in writing and the process of writing can involve a number of different things. Sometimes I will dictate it into a dictaphone. Um, sometimes I will handwrite, uh, handwrite it, and sometimes I will type it in the computer. And my observation about the way my mind works, and I don't know whether others might find this, is that each of those different processes um, uh, involve a different mechanism within my mind uh, and within my brain. When I try simply to produce the words uh, orally, um, I, uh, that, that, that's a very different way of thinking uh, to what it is when I'm typing on the computer and using my fingers to get the thoughts out um, in, into the computer. And it's entirely different to when I am making a note using my hand in longhand uh, on a piece of paper. Each of those things is a very different process and they have different degrees of precision and accuracy uh, involved in them. Uh, I don't know whether anybody else experiences that. 
I've got an anecdote about the different way minds work. Um, it, it's been shown that uh, students who handwrite notes generally um, remember more of what happens in a lecture precisely because they can't keep up the lecture and you're forced to summarise, mm. which means the information is not just transferred to the page, it is Being processed before it gets to the mm. page. And um, the anecdote I have about this is that... Um, oh, another interesting example. Um, tourists who take pictures of on holiday... Uh, pictures of a of a scene mm. remember less about what's in the scene than people who just look at it. Mm. <laughs> mm. They've outsourced their I, memory. I knew what you were going to say there, Cam, but in my head, comparing this directly to your yeah. previous example, I was thinking the people who take photos remember the scene less well than the people who do the oil paintings. Well, they certainly, <laughs> would. They certainly would. But no, what's interesting, Luke, and this is getting towards the oil painting example, is if you... If you operate the zoom on, if you have a camera with the zoom and you operate the zoom, um, you then remember more than other people who use a camera yeah. because you're processing it before you're taking it. You're deciding what should be in and what shouldn't be in. So the processing helps. And um, one of my friends who was helping out with the subject at Avondale was helping in a tutorial and noticed that one of the students was was taking, going to some pains to surround every page with a red border, was putting a red border around every page of their notes. And he asked why, and the student said that they had read research to the effect that um, uh, students who, when summarising their notes, highlight important parts, uh, draw boxes around important parts of their notes. Uh, it helps them remember them. And so they, their solution was to draw a box around everything. <laughs> <laughs> without without uh, doing any processing at all. Ambitious. <laughs> <laughs> I, so, the, I mean, sorry to pull it back, but this I can't help feeling this connects with what the lesson is talking about. This is connected in, a, in an oblique way to the idea of rest and, and busyness. What that student was doing in, in the quest for actual genuine engagement was was just busyness, mm. was just, just mm. the, the mind uh, fluttering, and, and flustered and and not actually benefiting a whole lot from the activity that was happening is is the idea of rest partly in intersecting with the idea of actually um, working productively rather than just busying oneself foolishly. Well, you've brought it back very very well to what I was intimating. I think the proverbs is is going to spend a lot of time on is that rest does not equate to idleness. It doesn't equate mm. to doing nothing. And if that is true in, as Cam said, an agrarian society, it should be even more true in our society where we really don't labor under the sort of physically demanding and, and, and one, one drought away from famine sort of existence. Um, but I, I've been having a thought during this discussion, which I want to bring to you, Locke, because I think you'll like it. It seems very much to me that this pursuit of wisdom that Proverbs is talking about is very similar fundamentally to the uh, the worldview of of science and scientists in general and i wondered if you had any thoughts on that <laughs> so there there are a couple of aspects i suppose um one aspect that occurs to me is is this idea it opens with this idea of wisdom crying aloud in the street but it's really obvious that a lot of that is not being necessarily heard you know it's it's it the the mental picture is an embodiment of wisdom being as noisy and loud and in your face as it possibly can be and yet still being missed 
and misheard and misunderstood by by the vast number of people who who turn away and and you know continue their scoffing um and that's a, that's a, a whole lot like you know in my experience of doing science once you understand the thing that you're trying to to discover it seems so obvious so much of the time it seems so obvious it feels as if it really was standing at the street corner screaming in your face but it wasn't necessary it wasn't necessarily feeling that obvious when you were on the way through it so i think that that there's that element we need to be acknowledging here wisdom is one of those things which tends to look profoundly simple but only in hindsight um so so there's sort of that a- aspect to it and then of course the 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 element of seeking uh, i suppose i might be misreading it slightly here in in verse 28 um they will seek me diligently but will not find me i i think that this is speaking of the of the foolish um if i'm following through that voice properly yes uh but the 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 diligently seeking the idea that it takes some some search some some discovery uh there's there's an element of uh, again what it seems to be speaking of here is this idea of worthwhile effort worthwhile work as opposed to the the flurry of folly mm. well so i i think at a fundamental level what i see particularly in proverbs 1 is and i think your distinction of wisdom and folly is a very is a not sorry your distinction of wisdom and knowledge is a very good one but proverbs 1 to me seems fundamentally to be saying that wisdom lies in seeking knowledge mm. and and people who don't seek knowledge suffer for it you know and then there, there's some the 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 proverb certainly seems to a, a, attempt to impart a sense of urgency which may be a, a sort of rhetorical flourish as opposed to a literal you know th- this idea that if if you seek for knowledge too late um you won't mm. find it is mm. it's more sort of trying to um encourage a certain reaction and a certain urgency to this as opposed to literally saying you know there's this sort of cut off knowledge and wisdom mm. that you've got to you actually have to meet or you'd never find any knowledge or wisdom at all but it just struck me as very sort of very scientific in the sense that wisdom is found in seeking knowledge mm. there's you also know, I, the element where it- it says in verse uh, 22, how long will you simple ones love your simple ways? Uh, one of the things I think that distinguishes scientists is the fact that they uh, really love finding that they've been wrong because we thought we understood mm. this and now we don't. Yes, and oh boy, is there a lot in Proverbs about that. Yeah, yeah. I, I will admit uh, that sometimes the motivation there is that scientists really love going through that process quickly so they can then go around telling other scientists that they have been wrong. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but but <laughs> let's not get too distracted. I think what you are describing is, is genuinely true. Uh, a, an engaged scientist is thoroughly excited to discover that an idea that they have held is, is less than accurate because it, it suddenly is something interesting to search into. Yeah. If, if we have enough time, it's not exactly in the in the way we were in the direction this discussion was moving. But there's a there's a reference here that made me think of something I've read just this week, which is really good. So I'd like to share it. It's the how long will you mockers delight in mockery? And the mockers get a few references in the passage we read, don't they? Don't they make a reappearance near the end? The, the, well, the simple reappear down near the end, and the fools. simple. 
and yes. fools. And the mockery, oh no, because wisdom will mock. I will yeah. mock you. That's the appearance mm. near the end. So it begins with mockers at the start. You love your simple ways. Simple people love simple ways and they, uh, they'll... And mockers delighting in mockery. And wisdom says, mm. well, who's going to have the last laugh? Um, I've been reading through the screw tape letters. So our listeners who are playing the C.S. Lewis reference, the, the Sabbath School from Home bingo can, can cross off the C.S. Lewis reference for this episode. And uh, the screw tape letters is is a, a book of fictional, obviously, letters written from a, a senior devil to a junior devil. And he makes this advice about humour and um, particularly about uh, mockery and flippancy. And it's really good. And so this is written from the point of view of, of, a, of a tempting devil. He says, The real use of jokes or humour to us is quite different in direction. And uh, especially among the English who take their sense of humour so seriously that a deficiency in this sense is almost the only deficiency at which they feel shame. Humour is for them the all-consoling, and mark this, the all-excusing grace of life. Hence it's invaluable as a means of destroying shame. If a man simply lets others pay for him, he's mean. If he boasts of it in a jocular manner and twists his, uh, and twits his fellows with having been scored off, he's no longer mean, but he's a comical fellow. Mere cowardice is shameful. Cowardice boasted of with humorous exaggerations and grotesque gestures can be passed off as funny. Cruelty is shameful unless the cruel man can represent it as a practical joke. A thousand bawdy or even blasphemous jokes do not help towards a man's damnation so much as his discovery that almost anything he wants to do can be done, not only with the, without the disapproval, but with the admiration of his fellows, if only it can be, it get itself treated as a joke. And this temptation can be almost entirely hidden from your patient by that English seriousness about humour. Any suggestion that there might be too much of it can be represented to him as puritanical or as betraying a lack of humour. But flippancy is the best <laughs> of all. In the first place, it's very economical. Only a clever human can make a real joke about virtue, or indeed about anything else. Any of them can be trained to talk as if virtue was funny. Among flippant people, the joke is always assumed to have been made. No one actually makes it. But every serious subject is discussed in a matter which implies that they have already found a ridiculous side to it. If prolonged, the habit of flippancy builds up around a man the finest armour plating against God's intervention that I know. And it's quite free from the dangers inherent in the other sources of laughter. It's a thousand miles away from joy. It deadens instead of sharpening the intellect. It excites no affection between those who practice it. <laughs> that That's very, very good, Cam. And I have to admit... Um, Many, many episodes ago, we discussed the spiritual gift of tongue-in-cheek. And, yeah. and I think that we do have to remind ourselves all on this podcast to, to keep that a little bit in check. Yes, well, I was just sitting here feeling slightly chastened and thinking, <laughs> thinking if yes. I've been overly flippant at any point in this, and indeed... You know, that's all right, that's all right, Luke. We've laughed at you now, so it's okay. No, yeah. that's not helping, Ken. <laughs> Yeah, but no, I mean, this is this is a really profound point, and maybe it's a point that we can ponder as we're finishing this episode. It's so easy to read the proverb that we to read the passage we just read and identify automatically with the wise mm. and with the people who are listening to wisdom, and to see in others the scoffers that delight in scoffing. That's really, really easy to do, isn't it? And it may not be fully accurate. Well, not if we read the rest of Proverbs. 
where delineation is made between the fools and the wise, what ought our self-estimation be? I think that that's a very important question. Mm. We might wrap it up in the interests of uh, some faster edits, and um, we've certainly not exhausted Proverbs 1, but we, we've explored some themes there that I think are very interesting. As always, we're interested in feedback from you, our listener, and uh, if you're enjoying this podcast, feel free to pass it on to anyone else who you think might enjoy it. And uh, thank you very much for listening in, and we look forward to you joining our discussion next week.